This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, it is the 16th of January. Markets have fallen for the beginning of this week. I mean, we have a series of earnings reports coming out. We had a hot December CPI, which we'll talk about shortly. Uh, Tim, let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think there's three things to think about here uh, as we approach this week. Obviously, earnings uh, are getting started in earnest. And then looking at where the 10-year is, uh, you mentioned uh, that slightly hotter CPI, but then we did get uh, a, a softer PPI, much of which m- some of that data feeds into PCE, which has been running cooler. Everybody is getting uh, very excited about that difference between CPI and PCE. And then just where sentiment is. And I think that really is the biggest risk to the market right now is that we do have really very bullish sentiment. On the earnings side, look, the way bottoms up, so analyst estimates, not strategist estimates, but bottoms up analyst estimates are actually looking for a down Q, uh, Q4 earnings. Uh, earnings are expected to be down barely, just below zero, but but down about half a percent. It was only a few months ago that estimates were for up 8%. And it's just, it's weird to me as somebody who spent his whole life in equities trying to guess are earnings going to be higher than expectations or lower? And if I think earnings are going to come in lower than expectations, then I want to be short the market or short that individual stock. And that just hasn't worked. It hasn't worked at, certainly for Q4, right? Q4 markets ripped even as earnings expectations were coming down. And if you look at the individual stocks where earnings expectations have come down the most, some of members of the Magnificent Seven, like Apple and like Tesla, those were some of the leadership names. So it's a weird market. Uh, I, I still think earnings matter, valuations matter, all that. But, you know, the old hackneyed phrase of in the short term, it's a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. Right now, the voting machine is is dominating. Uh, in terms of the 10-year, the market is still very much sensitive to where long rates go. Uh, you can see inflation expectations, despite gasoline prices coming in the way they have, by various measures like the five-year break-evens and so forth. Inflation expectations seem to be moving higher, and that seems to be holding the 10-year maybe above that 4% level. Now, you got a really strong 30-year auction last year. I thought that might be a risk, but it came in pretty solid. And that suggests to me that our thesis, and it's certainly not ours alone, Bridgewater just wrote a long-form essay about secular inflation risks, driven by some of the stuff that we talk about, like demographics, like deglobalization and protectionism, like high debt and so forth. David Kelly from JP Morgan had a piece on the risks to uh, long-term rates from excessive debt here in the United States. But as of right now, it's still kind of a back burner concern. And you look at the ebullience in equities and you have to think, all right, people still think that this narrative of inflation is dead and gone and defeated uh, is kind of winning the day. And then, as I said, sentiment and positioning is really, really bullish, right? So uh, it doesn't, shouldn't take much uh, of weak uh, economic data or maybe higher inflation 
look, that's the risk. That's the risk to markets that the that there is a change. What 20 what dominated 2024 and the reason for so much of the strength besides the AI excitement and all that is just the idea that growth has been more resilient than inflation has been. That could flip very, very easily. Oil moves up a little bit. We got the freight problems and so forth. You know, it won't take much for that narrative to switch to the thinking of, all right, growth is really starting to slow here. What if GDI numbers were right all along as opposed to GDP? Uh, and inflation is now considered the stickier uh, piece. That would be problematic for equities. And that, frankly, is is kind of what I expect to see going forward. And in terms of CPI, were you shocked at all by the December numbers? I mean, headline inflation rose 3.4% on an annual basis. Uh, you know, that was up from the 3.1% the previous month. Uh, you know, yeah. there's indications we've talked about that there's been cracks in employment and everything else. And yet, and yet that kind of continued unabated. Yeah, it's amazing. The leading indicators of employment are telling you employment's going to weaken and it hasn't happened. When temp jobs are terrible for as long as they have, you expect employment to really weaken. Uh, when jolts come in as much as they have, even if they're above uh, previous highs, uh, you would expect wages to weaken, employment to weaken. It just hasn't happened. I mean, jobless claims are are, are like uh, you know a, a dead man, electrocardiogram. Yeah. It's you know sitting there at two hundred thousand. Uh, they just haven't moved up. Continuing claims have moved up a little bit. Clearly, hirings have slowed, but it hasn't gone to the next step where firings have accelerated. It just hasn't. Um, was I shocked by the CPI? Not really, because I don't have expectations. I don't have the hubris to think that I know where a CPI number is going to come in. Um, you are getting uh, easier year-over-year -year comparisons. In other words, the base effects are coming off, so you're no longer comparing against a 9% number. Uh, the OER, the shelter, the housing component is still coming in hot. I don't know that there's a narrative that when you look at front month rents of private surveys like Zillow and so forth, that should inform us that OER and shelter inflation is going to come way down. What I think people miss in that analysis is that um, those Zillow numbers spiked way above what the shelter and OER components. So maybe all it is is those two numbers kind of converging. In other words, it makes sense that those private components would be coming down a lot faster than the shelter and OER numbers were because the shelter and OER numbers never went as high as, as the private uh, numbers did. Uh, I would expect, though, that there is going to be cooling in shelter inflation. Look, there's a tremendous amount of multifamily units uh, that have been built, that are in the process of being built. We're getting to completions on those. And I would think that when we get to those completions, you should see some softening uh, in rents and you should see some softening in housing overall. Is it enough to really weaken this economy? I think housing is critically important, primarily important. Uh, but is it? Uh, but isn't the consumer in strong enough shape? And isn't employment still in strong enough shape uh, that maybe it's it's just too bearish to think that uh, just because we have a lot of completions that everything is going to fall apart from a from an employment standpoint and from a consumer confidence standpoint? I sort of remain in the overall higher for longer camp uh, that demand stays pretty solid. Uh, and that you're not going to see the growth numbers fall off a cliff and you're not going to see inflation fall off a cliff either.
Yeah, I mean, and consumer spendings remain pretty buoyant. I mean, the retail monitor, excluding, you know, autos and gas, showed that it was up 0.4% in December, um, so down slightly from November, but, you know, pretty pretty strong still. I mean, look at the Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker. It goes sideways. It just printed another month sideways at like 5.6, I think. ADP came in at 5.2. Average hourly earnings uh, has kind of bottomed out. Uh, like you're just not seeing the kind of weakness in the economy that would or the weakness in jobs or the weakness in wages that would suggest that people are done spending. There's been a lot written about how savings have been uh, taken down, uh, you know, post all of the huge amount of stimulus in 20 and 21. But median uh, savings, median savings is still quite a bit higher, as much as 30 percent higher than pre-pandemic. So to me, you still don't have the conditions for some kind of demand recession. Uh, and again, unless you see housing fall apart, I don't see what triggers uh, a meaningful demand recession when wages are growing 5% and inflation is falling. So you now you have some real wage growth in the economy. That to me doesn't presage uh, a demand implosion. So the big news this week, and we often don't talk about crypto, but Bitcoin ETFs are beginning trading on the U.S. Um, you know, that went haywire for a little bit. And uh, part of that might be kind of, yeah, you know, the, the consumer and like we've talked about. One one of the things that surprised me is one Bitcoin fell, but also Coinbase um, didn't really necessarily crater as much as I thought either. So um, right. th those two things both shocked me. Well, it, it certainly appears that um, this got priced in, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the market is smarter than you are. You are the average trader and or 99% of the traders, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. it was not a shock that Gensler approved this. Should Gensler have approved it? I don't really think so. Um, but he did. And, 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 and it looked like it was like 90% priced in. So you had a very quick pop up to like 47 on uh, 47, 48 on crypto and then uh, on Bitcoin. And then you came back into this kind of 42, 43 level. So it all I think that we learned was that this had all been really well priced in. And that's what markets do. Yeah. And they approved, uh, was it 11 funds off the bat? So, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. 11 ETFs. There's ETS, a high shares fund and yeah, yeah. So it's pretty wild. I don't know. I, I think it's a sign of the abilience of the times. I think it's a sign of um, a, 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 a way too much complacency. I just look, mm -hmm. I'm a value guy. It, it got beaten into me as a young person when I started in this business in 1995. I look for cash flow. I want to get as many dollars for as, for as many dollars of cash yeah. flow as I can get. And I just can't get my head around why somebody wants to own uh, Bitcoin. I understand that, you know, it was the libertarians, right? It was the fiat currency guys that really drove Bitcoin early on. Those people who believed that the dollar was would, would be forever devalued, uh, that we have a competitive devaluation world, and that we are going to have runaway inflation. And the only thing that will be left to buy is gold and Bitcoin. Well, I'd still just rather own gold. And I think that uh, there's just some hysteria in the idea that the dollar is going to lose all its value. As 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 negative a view as I have of Congress and of policymakers yeah. in general, 
uh, I think the dollar will hold its value okay. I mean, that's a great segue into kind of the budget deficit run up. Um, you know, if kept at the current trajectory, 2024 is going to end at a deficit of more than $2 trillion. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's been another continued resolution to March. So I don't know if that means Mike Johnson keeps his spot. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, a continuous cycle of the dog catching the car. And I mean, we're doing yeah. this every few months. <laughs> well, it's amazing. Like, you know, the, the Getzes and Marjorie Taylor Greens have so much power now. Yeah. Uh, you know, Johnson has a very slim majority. He agreed to a deal with Schumer. He goes back to his caucus. And then it looked like for a couple of days that he was going to back out of the deal uh, with Schumer. And, you know, he ultimately he, he somehow was able to pull uh, the, you know, the Freedom Caucus back in to at least long enough so he can push things out to March. The thing that I find incredible is this negotiation for the uh, the child tax credit uh, and then accelerated depreciation. So, you know, I always say like I, I was a caddy when I was a kid and I can always remember guys having two five foot putts and looking at each other and going, good, good. Mm -hmm. Like, let's not do the hard work. Let's just yeah. give each other pars on this and, and move on to the next hole. And it's it seems to me like what Republicans and, and Democrats are doing. I'll give you a child tax credit. I'll give you an accelerated depreciation for businesses, and we both walk away and ignore the fact that the hard work here, the six-foot putt that we got to make, is actually figuring out a way to bring deficits down. The fact that we're still talking about just giving each other our favorite tax cuts uh, instead of actually attacking the debt and deficit problems that we have is, and, and who knows if that'll even pass, but it just shows that's where the discussion is. There's no hard discussion on how do we get more revenues and how do we actually spend less? And if we're gonna spend less, as you know, as everybody knows, it's gotta be in social security, Medicare, Medicaid, and defense. There's just not enough left over to cut spending uh, unless you attack those areas. And that's just, it's just simply not going to happen anytime soon. You know, name the politician who can get away with in this country saying, we should meaningfully cut defense spending or we should meaningfully cut Social Security. Like, it's just not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, his, his name's Rand Paul, and that's, that's about it. You know, <laughs> that's true. That's yeah. true. I'll give you that. He's, he's, he's not going anywhere. He's, he's not, you know, so that's it. <clears throat> There's not a real real executive contingent, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, before we part, I guess there's been two recent developments this week that I think are interesting. The Houthis, uh, the strikes by the British and the US, <clears throat> um, you know, that's come after many months of them shooting at different container ships from, you know, countries all over the world. So, but they don't seem cowed in the response. There was hundreds and thousands of people in the capital city, Santa, um, the other day, just saying, we don't care, let's make it a global world war. So uh, that was vexing to say the least. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I you know, uh, we're going to host at the, uh, the at the BISA, the Bank and Insurance Securities Association conference in March. We're going to host Dr. Colonel Jeffrey McCausland. Uh, and he and I had a call the other day where we were chatting about this. And it's amazing that uh, one of the technological innovations that has really changed this whole landscape is these cheap drones, that you can use these cheap drones to actually, you know, surveil uh, where your enemies are, but also to deliver cheap weapons, right? We're using $2 million 
uh, ICBMs uh, to fight people who are using $600 drones. Uh, and, you know, they are, um, they are seem to be very capable of continuing to wreak havoc in the, in the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Uh, and I, you know, when we talk about cyclical inflation is falling, we worry about long-term inflation. And one of those real concerns is that this end of Pax Americana, not just tariffs and so forth, but just the end of free and clear shipping lanes. Now, the U.S. and the British, as you said, did strike, but it doesn't appear to have been all that successful. The Iranians have all the money that they need because they've <clears throat> so much increased their oil exports over the last couple of years to keep funding Houthis or Hezbollah or Hamas or whatever proxy they choose for a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, and the Houthis, the civil war has been going on since, what, 2014. They're battle-hardened. They're uh, dug yeah. in, and they have huge swaths of the country. So, yeah, yeah it's it's a major issue. Um, and then I, I guess the, the last thing uh, is the primaries yesterday. Seems like it's always been Donald Trump's to lose, but, you know, from my indication, if you get over 50, he won Iowa by the largest margin. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of a done deal. Um, I'd be shocked if DeSantis doesn't drop out in the next couple of days. And uh, it makes it very hard, in my estimation, for Haley to do anything significant in New Hampshire. So it's I think yeah. it's a wrap at this point. Yeah, I yeah. think you're probably right. I, I mean, I think that's the consensus opinion. I think the consensus opinion is probably right. Uh, Donald Trump has a spell over the Republican Party um, where it looks like this whole thing is going to be done in March. I mean, you know, uh, he looks like he'll win New Hampshire and then he'll go to South Carolina and win in in, in, uh, in Nikki Haley's home state. Yeah. DeSantis just doesn't seem to have any momentum. Uh, I'm surprised that he caught as much excitement early in this thing as he does because he does have kind of an awkward way about him. Like he's not particularly charismatic, uh, to say the least. So he just seems dead in the water. Uh, you can't out Trump Trump. You can't move to the right of Trump. Yeah. Vivek seemed to have tried and he's out of the race now as of last night. So yeah, I think it's all over but to crying and it's going to be, uh, you know, Dean Phillips can't get on ballots anywhere. So no. it seems like the Democratic Party is going to go with Biden. And, you know, I just I, I find it disappointing um, uh, that Biden won't step aside. I mean, Look, my simple argument is if you can't hold a press conference, if you can't answer questions publicly from the press, you probably shouldn't be running for president again. No, it's, it's yeah, I mean, say what you will about age, but we know, I think, I mean, I think both of them are in decline. Uh, it's apparent. Sure. And I think well, Biden, I don't think there's any, any doubt, both of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was I a good article I was reading the other day that, an observer of many of Trump's speeches in this election cycle, you know, they were talking about how in 2020, when he would go off script, uh, everybody, that those were the most exciting part of the speeches. That was when the crowd really got most excited. And now when he goes off script, it's so rambling and so incoherent that actually everybody seems to get almost tense and quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, so he is not, he, he does not have the same capabilities as he did four years ago. No, <clears throat> yeah, it's <clears throat> it will definitely be interesting. Um, but you know, there's, I guess, there's still time between now and November for something to shake out. There's always a something 
you know, there's always a possibility. Yeah. But yeah. but yeah, as of now, I think it's these two guys. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Oh, what were you going to say, Tim? No, no. All good. Thank you, Drew. All right. All right. Thanks for all our listeners and subscribers uh, for this week. And we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.